guys, welcome back to The Bazaar, your one-stop shop for everything bizarre. My name's Bridget, and if you're new here, I'll be guiding you through our trip to The Bazaar. So, a few housekeeping things before we start. First, our views, or I guess listens, from the first week to the second week have doubled. Um, the bonus episode just went up a few hours ago as of the time I'm recording this, so we'll see how that one does. I'm not expecting it to do as well since it is like kind of a intermediate episode. However, thank you guys so much for listening every week. Second, if you couldn't tell, I changed my intro music and with that my transition music because the original music I picked was starting to drive me insane already and I knew I would not be able to tolerate it much longer. I hope this one is a little bit better. It's a little creepier, kind of cringy, corny horror movie trailer, but I like it better than the original. This week, we are going to be covering the Gabby Petito case. This is a really recent case that dominated social media and news platforms in early fall, late summer-ish, like September, October. Um, I remember watching this case unfold, clinging to my phone, refreshing my browser every five minutes, just watching it all uncurl, and it was crazy living inside of a case that got to be this famous. So with this topic, we are going to do a little sub-conversation on the psychology of domestic violence, which is a bit of a downer, but I did say I was going to include some psychology in this podcast, so we are going to use this as an opportunity to spread some awareness on what unfortunately led to a tragic end to this case. Like I said, I remember watching all of this unfold, and it was very scary and very enthralling to just see new pieces of evidence come out and people's interpretations and, like, where does this fit in? And finally, now we have some answers, even though they aren't pleasant ones. But today, we are going to dive into the heartbreaking case of Gabby Petito. Let's get started. So Gabrielle Venora Petito, best known to us and her family and friends as Gabby Petito, was born March 19th, 1999 in Blue Point, New York. Gabby is the daughter of Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt. She is the oldest of six siblings out of both full siblings and half siblings. Everything that I could find about Gabby's childhood and her personality growing up just supports the theory that she was just a ray of sunshine so positive, uplifting. Uh, She was always an activist. In 2013, she appeared in a music video with her stepbrothers that raised awareness of gun violence following the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. It seems like Gabby grew up in a pretty loving environment and that she contributed greatly to that. In 2017, Gabby graduated from Bayport Blue Point High School. Brian Laundrie, her future fiancé, had graduated there a, a year before her. So obviously they were in high school together at the same time. Reports said that they weren't particularly close at this time, but they did live relatively close to each other, and they were both categorized as, like, different, kind of like outsiders, didn't fit in with the crowd in high school. In September 2017, so just a few months after she graduated, Gabby moved to Carolina Beach, North Carolina, and worked as a hostess in a restaurant. She applied to Cape Fear Community College while she was there, but never ended up attending. She lived here until January of 2019. It's not exactly clear how Gabby and Brian reunited, but they did start dating in March of 2019. Following this, she moved to North Point, Florida to live with him and his parents. Following her move, they both worked at a Publix. 
She was a pharmacy tech, and he worked in the grocery department. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, they both quit their jobs there. It seems like Brian and Gabby were likely bonding about their similar ideal lifestyles, including traveling, organic foods, eating healthy, that whole, like, lifestyle that we saw documented on Gabby's social media later on in the story. Um, So that actually led to them going on a cross-country drive in late 2019 into early 2020. They drove from New York to California and stopped in Las Vegas, Yosemite, Pismo Beach, and a few other points of interest along the way. At the conclusion of this trip in March of 2020, Gabby celebrated her 21st birthday in Florida. The couple traveled some more throughout the year and were engaged in July 2020. In December, so about six months later, Gabby decided she wanted to take a step to further their traveling lifestyle, and she bought a 2020 Ford Transit Connect van, which she converted into a camper to take on their next trip. At this time, Gabby worked 50 hours per week collectively between Taco Bell and as a nutritionist. Meanwhile, Laundry worked at an organic juice bar. This was when Gabby really started to document her life on social media between her healthy lifestyle to her travels and her relationship. She grew in popularity on social media because it seemed to a lot that she was living an ideal lifestyle. She described her Instagram as, quote, art, yoga, and veggies. On June 17th, 2021, the couple went to Gabby's hometown, Blue Point, New York, to be at her brother's graduation. From what I gathered, this was the last time she saw her family. On July 2nd, 2021, the couple began their trip in the Ford Transit. Within that first month of the trip, they visited Monument Rocks, Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve, Zion National Park, Bryce Canyon National Park, Mystic Hot Springs, Canyonlands National Park, and other little adventures along the way. Other than from Gabby's social media posts, we don't really know much about what the quality of the trip was like at this time. I highly doubt it was sunshine and rainbows. It could have had some good parts. We're not really sure. But if the future of this trip was any predictor, then it probably was unfortunately not as Gabby had planned. On August 12th, 2021, about a month after the trip had started, a little over a month, A witness called 911 claiming that a couple was fighting in front of the Moonflower Community Cooperative in Moab, Utah. This couple was identified as Gabby and Brian. The caller reported that the man slapped the woman, then the two ran up and down the sidewalk and he hit her another time. Another witness described the same incident as the couple talking, quote, aggressively and that she was, quote, punching him in the arm. Witnesses said that it appeared that Brian was trying to leave Gabby with her phone, before she climbed into the driver's seat and moved into the passenger seat, then asked, quote, why do you have to be so mean? Reportedly, they drove off after this comment. I'm going to try to import some of the body cam footage so that it's just not me talking, but just in case that can't happen, I am including a quote of what the two said. Officers from the police department identified the van near the an entrance to Arches National Park and conducted a traffic stop. They discovered Gabby crying heavily in the passenger seat, and she told officers, which was captured on body cam footage, quote, Yeah, I don't know if some days. I have really bad OCD. I was just cleaning and straightening up back in the... I was apologizing to him and saying, I'm sorry that I'm so mean, because sometimes I have OCD and sometimes I can get really frustrated. Not like mean towards him. I just like, I just, my vibe is, I'm in a bad mood. And I was just saying, I'm sorry if I'm in a bad mood. I just, I had so much work I was doing on my computer this morning. And I just now quit my job to travel across the country, and I'm trying to start a blog. 
I have a blog, so I've been building my website. I've been really stressed, and he doesn't really believe that I could do any of it, so we've just been fighting all morning, and he wouldn't let me in the car before. Gabby originally dismissed their comments about the physical interaction that went on between them, according to the witnesses, but the officer pointed out the marks that were on her arm and face and told her to, quote, just be honest. Then she said that he, quote, kept telling me to shut up and grabbed my face. While this was going on, Brian was talking to another officer who captured him, saying this. I said, let's just take a breather and let's not go anywhere and just calm down for a minute. She was getting worked up. And then she had her phone and was trying to get the keys from me. I was just trying to, I know I shouldn't push her. I was just trying to push her away to go. Let's take a minute and step back and breathe and see. She got me with her phone. Gabby took the blame for the physical altercation by saying that she hit Brian first, then asked officers not to separate them. Following these accounts from both Gabby and Brian, officers said this in their report. At no point in my investigation did Gabrielle stop crying, breathing heavily, or compose a sentence without needing to wipe away tears, wipe her nose, or rub her knees with her hands. The male tried to create distance by telling Gabby to take a walk to calm down. She did not want to be separated from the male and began slapping him. He grabbed her face and pushed her back as she pressed upon him and the van. So we're going to talk more about this later on when we get to the domestic violence portion of this episode, but in my opinion, knowing what we know now, I think Gabby was likely going through something called reactive abuse, which, like we'll cover later, is basically when the person that is being abused lashes out towards the abuser, and then the abuser kind of tries to use this to their advantage and say that they're actually the one that's the victim in the situation. Anyway, neither Brian nor Gabby wanted to press charges, so the incident was characterized as a mental and emotional health break rather than domestic violence. If it had been characterized as domestic violence, police would have had to make an arrest. Despite Gabby objecting to this previously, they were separated for the night. Brian stayed at Bowen Motel and Gabby stayed in the van. So currently, like in hindsight of all of the events that we now know occurred, MCPD is investigating the way that this incident was handled and whether or not the officers handled the case properly in accordance with the policies of the department. The chief of police of the MCPD actually took a leave of absence for this investigation. On August 17th, which is five days after the incident we just covered, Brian took a flight from Salt Lake City to Tampa, leaving Gabby to herself. She stayed at Fairfield Inn and Suites near Salt Lake City International Airport. She checked herself out on August 24th. Later on, Brian's attorney claimed that he had made this trip to, quote, obtain some items and empty and close the storage unit to save money as they contemplated extending the road trip, end quote. On August 23rd, the couple reunited to continue the trip, so presumably Brian stayed with Gabby in the hotel that last night that she was there. On August 25th, Gabby spoke to her mother for what would end up being the last confirmed time. I'm assuming this means they talked on the phone rather than text messages, because later on we'll see that there were some text communications that could not be proven whether or not they were Gabby, but most likely were not. Anyways, during this conversation, Gabby told her mom that they were traveling from Utah and ending up in Yellowstone National Park. That day, the last post that Gabby made on Instagram was posted. They were It was photos of herself taken in front of a butterfly mural outside a restaurant in Utah. I remember seeing some speculation at the time about whether or not this post was actually made by Gabby, but as far as I know, it was. Or at least I haven't heard anything officially connected to it. The events of the next few days are where things start to get fuzzy and we're not sure exactly what happened, how it happened, and how we got from this point to 
her eventual murder. There are some witness statements that came out during the investigation that helped piece everything together and ultimately get a pretty good understanding of what was going on behind the scenes, but unfortunately we'll never know exactly how things went down, but this is what we have. On August 27th, two days after the last confirmed time that Gabby talked to her mom, Gabby's mom received a text message from Gabby that read, quote, Can you help Stan? I just keep getting his voicemails and missed calls, end quote. Gabby's mom was immediately a little suspicious of this text because Stan was her grandfather's name, but Gabby never referred to him by first name. Like I said, Gabby's mom was immediately a little confused about this text as it did not seem like it was something that Gabby would say and just didn't really make sense, but I don't think she had any super ill suspicions at this time. I'm not 100% sure in what order these witnesses came forward and when they actually reported these things, but I'm going to describe some witness accounts in the order that they ended up occurring. A witness claimed that between 1 to 2 p.m. on August 27th, so the same day as that weird text went to Gabby's mom, she saw the couple at a restaurant called Mary Piglet's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. According to this witness, Brian was arguing with the manager, waitress, and hostess of the restaurant about money. The witness described him as aggressive. Later on, the same witness claims that Gabby returned, crying and apologizing for Brian's behavior. The staff later confirmed from Instagram pictures that the couple was there. Yet another witness contacted the FBI to report activities and location of a slow-moving white van and a, quote, generic young white man acting weird around the Spread Creek dispersed camping area. They witnessed these events from August 26th to 27th and possibly the 28th, so this fits kind of in the midst of that restaurant incident. As we saw a lot of people do during this case, this witness posted a TikTok sharing her observations. Later on in the development of this case, the witness came forward and said that the FBI had contacted her and told her that her observations had, quote, tipped us off to the right place, end quote, when it comes to finding Gabby's body. Another woman posted a video on TikTok describing an experience that occurred on August 29th. She stated that her and her boyfriend picked Brian up from an area near Coulter Bay Village after seeing him hitchhiking alone. She reported that he, quote, freaked out when learning that they were going to Jackson Hole, not Jackson, Wyoming. He left the vehicle at around 6.09 p.m. near Jackson Lake Dam, less than 30 minutes after being picked up by the couple. The witness described it as weird that he offered $200 for the 10-mile ride and didn't appear dirty despite claiming to be camping for days. Another witness claimed that she picked up Brian from the Jackson Lake Dam area around 6.20 to 6.30 p.m. that same day, so we're talking like 10-20 minutes after he got out of the previous couple's car. She then said she dropped him off at the entrance to Spread Creek Dispersed Camping Area. He offered gas money for the 20-minute ride, but did not want to be taken any further than the entrance of the campground, which was still several miles from the van. Witness said he acted antsy about getting out of the vehicle, so Brian was very adamant about not being taken any closer to where he was headed. So when this witness account came out, we didn't know this, but as it unfolded, this is what I'm talking about, like more evidence just kept coming out, piecing things together, and that actually ended up being around where they found Gabby's body. The next day, so August 30th, Gabby's mother received what would be the last text from her phone stating, quote, no service in Yosemite. Once again, Gabby's mom was immediately suspicious about who sent this message, which I'm sure grew thicker as more unwound in this case, and she realized one thing, like, 
I'm sure at the time she was like, that's a little out of character for Gabby, but as more and more things started occurring, I'm sure she just had that bad feeling like that wasn't Gabby. Knowing what we know now, it is pretty likely that that text came from Brian and most likely the one before that that Gabby's mom was suspicious of. This is where shit really started to get crazy on social media and the news because before this we weren't really aware that anything was occurring, but on September 1st, Brian returned to his parents' home in Florida in Gabby's Ford Transit alone. He was not with Gabby, he was by himself. While he was home, he embarked on normal activities. He rode his bike around his town, he mowed the lawn, and the family even went on a camping trip. Gabby's family later said that at this time they were trying to reach Brian's family and Brian because they felt like something was wrong, something was off, they knew. And Brian's family and Brian said nothing to them. Radio silence, no text, no call, nothing. On September 11th, after weeks of not hearing from Gabby and many attempts at trying to reach Brian and his family, Gabby's mother finally reported her missing. Four days later, Brian was identified as a person of interest and his parents hired a lawyer. The entire family stayed completely silent per their lawyer's advice. Police were stationed outside the laundry home at all times now. They saw Brian leave on September 13th. On September 15th, his car returned and they believed that the person who exited and went inside was Brian. The next day, Northport Police Chief Todd Garrison told reporters, quote, all I'm going to say is we know where Brian Laundrie is at, end quote. On September 17th, Brian was reported missing by his parents, who claimed not to have seen him since he left on September 13th. At this time, police realized they had mistaken his mother for him on September 15th when his car returned. So that person that left the car that day and went inside who they thought was Brian was actually his mom. I have a lot of questions about this. First of all, where, like, did they actually not see Brian after that? Because I highly doubt that. Why did she have his car? Clearly, she knew something about where he was or where his car was, and I don't know for sure that his parents knew anything or were involved, but this specific instance is a little bit shady to me. Many questions there. Search warrants were finally obtained. The police seized the Ford Transit, an external hard drive, and the Laundry family Ford Mustang. On September 19th, following a huge search that I remember following on social media, human remains matching Gabby's description were found at the Spread Creek Dispersed Camping Area in Wyoming. This is where, or near where, the one witness had dropped him off and described him as antsy, so you can put two and two together there. Think about what he may have been doing or had already done or why he was there. It's really eerie when you think about it. I can't imagine being those people who dropped him off there. Very scary. This location also matched a previous location where the Ford Transit had been spotted. An autopsy was conducted and it was confirmed that it was Gabby. She was murdered with blunt force injuries to the head and neck and manual strangulation. It was estimated that this occurred three to four weeks before they actually found her body. So if you go back in the timeline, that's somewhere between August 25th and September 1st. I remember when this was revealed that there was speculation about if he was the one who had posted that final post on Gabby's Instagram. There was a lot of shit flying around about the timeline when they found her body. I remember feeling so heartbroken because deep down a lot of people were saying that it was the most likely outcome that she had been murdered or got hurt somewhere along the way. I remember people saying that she may have fallen and Brian panicked and didn't know what to do. 
I remember people saying they were fighting and he pushed her and she accidentally hit something and died and it wasn't his intention. And I remember people making up a lot of theories, but regardless, most of them ended in she was deceased. However, when it was revealed, I was heartbroken. I was holding on to hope that she would be able to come out on top, tell her story, and recover from it. So, very sad. It was also at this time that people started speculating that Brian was going to be found dead after committing suicide. Like I said, there were theories that it was just a fight that had gotten out of hand and she had fallen by accident, or it wasn't even a fight, she just got hurt and Brian panicked. There were so many theories, but most of them had come to terms with the fact that she was probably not going to walk out of this. Even though they had found her body, they still didn't really have anything to solidify that Brian was involved, even though it was very obvious to the rest of us they couldn't officially make that claim. But that changed on September 23rd when a warrant for his arrest came out stemming from unauthorized use of Gabby's debit card to obtain over $1,000 between August 30th and September 1st. On October 5th, Brian's sister appeared on ABC News. She encouraged him to turn himself in. Two days later, Brian's father joined the search for him at a reserve and a park that he used to frequent. Meanwhile, on social media, people were beginning to be skeptical or increasingly skeptical of parental involvement in Brian's disappearance and knowledge about what had happened to Gabby, that they were obstructing the search, all of this. I remember something about how People had been searching the area for days and hadn't found anything, and then as soon as Brian's father joined the search, he found a backpack or something like that. I am not 100% certain of that, so don't quote me on that, but my point is, there was a lot of speculation, a lot of theories going on in social media on this time, at this time. On October 20th, skeletal remains were found at the park that they had been searching at, in a part of the park that had been underwater from flooding. Forensic dentistry eventually confirmed that it was Brian's body, but the cause of death could not be determined from a normal autopsy. An anthropologist was actually given the remains and determined that the cause of death was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. So, Brian did commit suicide. A lot of people stopped following the case at this time. There wasn't as much social media or news coverage. It unfortunately just kind of was taken over by other cases that were, you know, unfolding at that time. On January 21st of 2022, the FBI revealed that Brian's notebook that was found by his body had included a confession to killing Gabby and confessed to attempting to deceive people that she was still alive by sending text messages from her phone. This is what makes us think it was almost certainly Brian who sent those last two text messages to her mom. After making all these discoveries, the FBI Denver Division closed out the investigation and said, quote, the investigation did not identify any other individuals other than Brian Laundrie directly involved in the tragic death of Gabby Petito. The FBI's primary focus throughout the investigation was to bring justice to Gabby and her family. So ultimately, the case was closed at this time. It was concluded that the domestic violence incident just progressed and one thing led to another. Some sort of snap occurred and Brian murdered Gabby, hid, and then killed himself. It is still unclear how much his parents knew, how involved they were, if they knew where he was going, if they knew what he planned to do. There are still a lot of questions, but the case was closed. So like I've said like 800 times at this point, huge amounts of public interest in this case. It is probably 
the most that I personally have ever seen a true crime case unfold on social media. The amount of coverage that this story got was attributed to a lot of factors, so some of them were the refusal of Brian and his family to comment, Gabby's existing social media presence, footage of the traffic stop and the reported domestic violence incidents, audio of the 911 calls, posts from the witnesses that kept appearing, especially on TikTok, which added to the unfolding of the case and trying to frame everything put in perspective, the idea of this glamorized young couple on what seemed to be a romantic trip, like everyone wants to travel and live in your van and be with your significant other, it just seemed very idolized. Um, other factors of this case's publicity could have been an increase in interest in domestic violence incidents and prevention, increase in cross-country van-dwelling lifestyle, and an overall interest in true crime entertainment growing. True crime is a growing subject. We know that. That's why this podcast exists. That's why so many podcasts exist. People are really starting to get into true crime like they never have before. There was speculation, mostly on social media and just through, like, outside accounts, not so much official accounts, that this case was connected to murders of Kyle Schultz and Crystal Turner that occurred in Moab around the time that the couple was there. I remember seeing not only this, but speculation that there was a serial killer traveling through that area and that it was either Brian or Brian was being framed. I remember seeing a theory that Gabby had found out about Brian's habits or had witnessed him lose it and kill someone and got freaked out and threatened him and then he snapped. There were so many theories going around. I can't even remember them all now because I kind of have tunnel vision on what we actually know happened, but there were so many posts going around with so many ideas, so much evidence, so many claims. It was a crazy time to be on social media and see it all happening. There were so many videos going around, so much evidence that, you know, I don't know where it actually ended up fitting into the case, but people had a lot to say, a lot to give to this case, and I remember just sitting there refreshing my feed, waiting for an update, and unfortunately, it wasn't such a happy ending. When authorities commented on the posts and the observations and theories from both witnesses and individuals, they said that while some were helpful, others were insensitive, straight up unhelpful, motivated by fame and increased exposure on social media, monetized, or just misinformation, just wrong. There were also protests outside the Laundry family home. There was a candlelight vigil for Gabby and the family of Gabby created the Gabby Petito Foundation to support searches for others, so there was an immense amount of donations going to that foundation. The interest in this case actually led to the discovery of five other bodies of people that had been reported missing. That actually caused a lot of controversy, and it's really interesting to think about that, because while it is a positive thing that these bodies were eventually able to be found and bring closure to the family, it's like... People should have been searching for them just as hard as they were searching for Gabby. It shouldn't have had to take this influencer going missing for people to care about the other ones. So the high publicity that came to this case in particular was deemed an example of missing white woman syndrome, which is the tendency for the media to prioritize and blow up cases about white women. It's the overemphasis of news about cases based on race, gender, age, and appearance. So basically, there was a significant lack of attention in comparison to Gabby's case on the estimated 710 indigenous people that went missing in that same area between 2011 and 2020. So basically, the resources, the media attention, just the effort in finding people 
was significantly lacking when you compare it to that that was put into Gabby's disappearance. The last, or I guess the latest, major update in this case is that as of March of 2022, so just a few months ago, Gabby's family is filing for a lawsuit against Brian's family for their silence, claiming that they knew of the murder when they expressed support of the search for Gabby and thus hindered the search by not revealing their knowledge. It states, quote, It is believed that on or about August 28, 2021, Brian Laundrie advised his parents that he had murdered Gabrielle Petito, end quote. The lawsuit also claims that parents that Brian's parents were protecting his location and trying to arrange for him to leave the country. This lawsuit will head to trial in August 2023, so there will be more updates eventually, but unfortunately, the Petito family is going to have to wait a bit of time to settle that one way or another. So this case led to a lot of conversations about domestic violence and you know, the telltale signs and what was missed by the officers and those uh, body cam footage incidents and just all of all of that just really comes into play here. So that's why we're going to shift the conversation into domestic violence as a whole. So basically what domestic violence is, is the consistent attempt to control a partner through physical, sexual, emotional, or economic abuse. The official definition from the United States Department of Justice defines it as a, quote, pattern of abusive behavior in any relationship that is used by one partner to gain or maintain control over another intimate partner. So basically, it is an unequal power dynamic in a relationship, not necessarily romantic, in any relationship, that is formed by and maintained through several different types of abuse. So the first type of abuse that we listed that can occur in domestic violence was physical abuse. Chances are this is the first type of abuse that comes to mind when you hear domestic violence. So physical abuse can include hitting, pushing, denying medical care, or even threats of physical violence. Obviously there are tons of other examples of what would constitute physical abuse, but that is what would sum it up. An interesting and really, really disturbing and upsetting fact that I came across in my research for this is that strangulation as a form of violence is one of the strongest predictors that a partner is going to end up attempting or completing murder against their partner. So what this means is basically like if, I don't know, say, so what this means is if one partner strangles another partner in a violent way, at any time, they are now significantly more likely to attempt or successfully complete murdering their partner, which is insane, fucked up, and very disturbing. The next type of abuse is emotional abuse. What this means, manipulation, threats, name-calling, and insults, using loved ones as leverage, so that could mean, you know, obviously insults, name-calling, pretty self-explanatory. Using loved ones as leverage, that would be like, do what I say or you're not going to see X, Y, and Z. Threats, do what I say or you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z. Manipulation, if you loved me, you would do this. There are a million examples of emotional abuse. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't even realize that certain actions are emotionally abusive. This is something that is being studied a lot more and is coming to light a lot more and just being spread more awareness is being spread about emotional abuse because it wasn't 
fully understood for what it was until, I don't want to say recently, but it's been a development, it's been a process of fully understanding what emotional abuse means and is. So next we have sexual abuse, so that could look like rape, any form of sexual assault, coercion, so if you say no at first and then, you know, there's guilt trips, there's repeated asking, doesn't let up until you finally say yes, that would be an example of that. Many victims, especially in a married couple, don't report sexual abuse. Many survivors of marital rape or sexual abuse in a relationship did not resist due to fear of injury, fear of useless efforts, or the effect that it would have on the relationship or marriage after the incident was over. The same goes for domestic violence in general, but when it comes to sexual abuse in relationships, that's a really common theme is just shame and doubt and fear of what that would lead to. So the next one is economic abuse, and this one is talked about way less, but this would basically be anything that sabotages money, finances, that whole thing. So this could be withholding funds, putting someone into debt, or, you know, depositing your significant other's paycheck into your account and not giving them access to the money, anything like that that fucks with their financial state would be considered economic abuse and is a very obvious means of controlling someone. So obviously, domestic violence doesn't have to include all of these types of abuse. It could be just one. It probably is a combination of both. It could be any combination of these forms of abuse, it does not have to be all of them, it doesn't have to be just one, it is a spectrum and it is being talked about more, which is a positive thing. It's awful that it's something that has to be discussed, but since it is, at least awareness can be spread about it. Another interesting discovery I made when I was researching for this that I hadn't thought about before is actually the effect that technology has had on domestic violence and in enabling these abusers. For one, we now have constant means of communication. An abuser could expect constant communication from their victim, constant stalking, tracking, location services, that whole deal. So not only are they constantly communicating, they're constantly aware of where they are, what they're doing, who they're with. Not only is that really restrictive in a person's life, should they decide that they wanna leave the situation, it makes it really, really difficult and dangerous even more so than it already was to begin with in that situation. Technology also enables complete control over home devices. This includes alarm systems, thermostats, lights, and by manipulating these home devices, abusers can instill fear, isolation, humiliation, and just overall control over the person in their life. And that is a horrifying thought, but it's another reality of what technology has done in these examples. So what causes a person to become an abuser? So there's a lot of, I don't want to say obvious reasons, but more known reasons. It's possible that the person is mentally ill or has a history of it. There's a combination of factors. There is so much that could go on in a person's life and upbringing and genetics that could result in them being this type of person. So like we said in the beginning, domestic abuse is driven by the desire for control to maintain the power and assume the position of superiority over their partner. This could come into play with gender norms and toxic beliefs about gender roles and men and women relationships and how a woman, a woman quote, should be, um, everything like this. So just 
toxic beliefs about a woman's role in a relationship can definitely lead this there, but I don't want to exclude things being the other way around because, of course, a woman can be an abuser, a woman can abuse a man, a woman can abuse a woman. It can go... Any relationship can experience domestic violence. It is not just heterosexual relationships, but that's just one example of what can drive, in this case, a heterosexual male to be an abuser. Following that same path, we have the idea of men believing that women should be in a caretaker role, and for anyone, violence may have been learned in a family setting from childhood and just be a matter of repeating patterns that were learned. Of course, like I said, there's genetic factors, there's mental illness, there is so much other outside stimuli that can influence this occurring. In public, especially with narcissistic abusers, they're likely smart, trustworthy, seem charming, and have an inviting personality. We're going to discuss narcissistic abuse more in depth at another time, and we're going to cover trauma bonds a little bit in this episode, but probably more in depth another time. But a lot of this is mainly centered on narcissistic abuse, but can be attributed to domestic violence in general. So despite seeming very charming in public, they are a nightmare behind closed doors who aim to isolate and humiliate their victims who also happen to be their partners or other loved one. Not only do they want control and power, they want to make their victims feel shameful, doubtful, and depend on them. They want to have them questioning their sanity because it gives them more power. So, like we said, anything that gives them more power, they want it. And to do that, they have to not only make their vi victims rely on them, but make them question themselves, make them feel like the only person they can trust is their partner. It really is a toxic cycle, and it's so sad to hear all these stories, to live all these stories, to see so many examples of this happening and not have all the answers. In these cases, the abuser will likely blame the victim constantly, degrade them, and leverage their behavior with their ideal reactions from their partner. So they may say, like, if you share your location with me at all times, I won't have to come with you for all of your plans. You can have a little bit of time to yourself. That would be an example of acting like you're doing them a favor, but really just trying to gain more control over them. And usually when something like that happens, the person being abused will be grateful and think that their partner is so kind for doing that and that they're changing and it becomes a very, very hard cycle. Some potential signs to look for in a partner or in someone else's partner or just of this relationship dynamic in general would be attempts to isolate the victim from family, friends, work, or other support systems, explosive tempers with possible violence and aggression, constant accusations of cheating and jealousy, needing location, and episodes that lead to remorse and then attempts to woo partner back, with affection and promises to change, though they rarely actually follow through with these changes. Relationships that experience domestic violence have been categorized into experiencing three main phases. So the first one would be the tension-building phase, which is also called the escalation or build-up. So this is where the abuser gets an increase in anger, is blaming, arguing. There's an increase in verbal and minor physical abuse. This is where they really frighten their victim into submission. So this period can last days, weeks, or months, and as this cycle repeats over and over, this phase becomes more frequent. So despite all of those claims that this person is going to change, this cycle is still going to come back, and it's going to come back more and more often. So next we have the battering phase, and like we said, domestic violence does not look the same in every relationship, so this is just a general description of what this could include, but we have 
hitting, slapping, kicking, choking, using objects as weapons, possible sexual abuse, verbal threats with less desire to control their anger. They start to see their violence as a way to relieve stress and change the behavior of their person they're abusing. After this phase is over, they may start to seek help. This is like the climax, like the worst behavior in the cycle. The victim is starting to feel very hurt and very afraid while the abuser is somehow feeling ashamed and guilty for their behavior, even though they're eventually going to revert back to it. So the third phase we have is the honeymoon phase. Similar to how the first phase increases over time, the honeymoon phase decreases over time. So it's less frequent and it's not as long. So during this phase, the abuser may deny their violence, make excuses for it, but also apologize and promise change and positive things and healing. They may buy gifts and offer incredibly loving behavior. So at this point, the victim is probably getting a glimpse of the person that they believe to be in a relationship with. They're feeling like they can fix it. They're feeling optimistic. So this is when the victim is least likely to leave the relationship. And if you think about it, that makes sense. This is the phase where the abuser is probably the most willing to get help due to feeling regretful, wanting to get back in good graces, feeling motivated to fix the relationship. However, ultimately, the battering cycle is going to be reinforced and they're going to start back over in the tension building phase. And I say this like it's very cut and dry. Obviously, it's black and white. There are exceptions, but that is the logic of the three phases of domestic violence. So we're going to transition into a brief conversation about reactive abuse. So like I mentioned earlier, this is what I believe Gabby was experiencing in the situation that we observed with the 911 call. So reactive abuse occurs when the victim of the original abuse lashes back out at their abuser. So this can look like screaming, crying, insults, physical violence... In some cases, the abuser will end up using this against their victim and saying that they're crazy, they're the abuser, I'm the victim, they're mentally ill, etc, etc. You get the point. This is an attempt to escape their own behavior, excuse themselves, and paint themselves as the victim. They're crazy, they need help, I'm the victim, I didn't do anything wrong, please help me. And unfortunately, that further isolates the victim, gives them more control, and just continues the cycle over and over, and it is a very sad thing to even talk about. So then this leads to the idea of trauma bonds, which very well could have been what was occurring between Gabby and Brian. I don't want to speculate too much on that because I'm not an expert on the case and I'm not a psychologist, so I cannot say that for sure, but I still thought it was worth mentioning in this episode. A trauma bond is an attachment that is formed between an abused person and their abuser. So victim and abuser dynamic This is reinforced by that honeymoon phase that we discussed. It's basically where it's almost like a less extreme form of Stockholm Syndrome, where they just excuse the partner's behavior, everything's going to be okay, we're in love, it's great, we're going to fix it. And it can reinforce these behaviors, make it less likely to leave, and it takes a lot for a person to overcome this. So the last few topics we covered, like reactive abuse and trauma bonds are almost subcategories of domestic abuse. I imagine we'll get into them at some point in the future when they come up in other cases, but I just wanted to touch on them a little bit now because it does fit in with the Gabby Petito case that we were covering. So that about wraps up the Gabby Petito case and the little sub-conversation on domestic violence.
right, guys, as always, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Bazaar, your one-stop shop for everything bizarre. I'll be back next week. I think we're going to do the dark web next week. That's what I'm leaning towards. No promises, but it's probable. So, all right, hopefully I'll stick with this music for one more week, and I'll see you guys next time.